0: I feel like there's a lot of it's context art. in it's this art. in this society where I am like fucking persecuted, basically, because uh, <laughs> the, because I don't want to the, wrecking, I, of the I, earth. I don't want to play games. I don't want to play board games. like I don't want to I don't know whatever it is that some <laughs> little project you want to come up with for the day. I want to sit there and fucking talk shit.
1: philosophy. I'm Lillian, and here with me today are Gil, Owen, and Will. Hey, guys.
0: Hello. What's up, everyone? Yo.
1: So today's episode is about famed Marxist historian E.P. Thompson. Um, Now, don't get excited because we're not talking about his magnum opus, The Making of the English Working Class, um, which was published in 1963, We're biting off only as much as we or we suspect you can chew from Thompson's formidable contributions to social theory, Marxist theory, and to what we now call social history from below. Instead, what we're talking about is a short essay from 1967 called Time, Work, Discipline, and Industrial Capitalism, in which he argues that a qualitative change in our understanding of time emerged with capitalist work discipline. Unsurprisingly, he explains how he thinks this may have happened in England up to and including the 19th century, in which there was a long durée of employers having to force workers to think about time in terms of how market competition increases labor productivity and how that demanded that they start to think about themselves. Basically, he's trying to explain how it becomes common sense to think that time is money that time is something that can be used poorly, wasted, and spent, especially if it's on other people's dime. Zooming out, Thompson's contribution to Marxism lies in the extent to which he dwelled on the question of class formation like no one else had done before, or maybe since. He is famous for saying that the working class did not rise like the sun at an appointed time. It was present at its own making. This famous passage in the preface of the making of the English working class is one way of insisting on an argument that Thompson had been having with structural functionalists and with Althusserian structuralism for a while. He didn't think that these schools of thought could capture how classes form, seeing them as functions of the level of the productive forces. I'd say that he's the first pragmatist or class struggle first Marxist, but his reception has mostly been that he is the first culture matters Marxist. Though I feel strongly about this distinction, I won't press the point. I think it's enough to appreciate the stent to which Thompson opened these lines of debate and to appreciate the great compassion and admiration that he had for the life world of the working class. In Making, one of the most beautiful and impassioned chapters is about the historical crime of child labor during the capitalist transition. And one is likely to cry, or at least I did. Returning to the essay on time, One of the most interesting arguments is that the revolution of time thinking leads to different forms of conflict. In the first place, workers simply resisted the supervision of their time, discipline associated with regimenting their time, and clung to older ways of measuring time. But later, Thompson finds that workers started to fight not against time, but about time. In this regard, I recommend having listened to an earlier episode that we did with Martin Haglund, where we talked about the existential significance of time in leading a meaningful life. I'll let the guys fill this in, but there's something deeply important about the way that time management leads us to think about what is worthwhile about human life. And I'm struck with reading this essay how much we all already know that. I don't know any thoughtful person on any part of the political spectrum that tells their children that life is about time spent at work. One normally educates one's child to think that what, in quotes, really matters are things like love, family, human connection whether or not one's policy positions undermine that existential point of view or not. My point is that few people actually plumb the existential depths that is marrying time spent at work to happiness. It may be cope, but we all pretty much think we're doing it for these other better things, since we know that even if you can buy time, you can't buy happiness. The essay does a wonderful job of posing questions about human alienation, reification, and freedom from a different angle than the one in which we usually encounter them. So I thought it was really nice to read, and I wonder what you guys thought about this one.
2: Yeah, thank you for, for that great introduction. So my first thought when I encountered this essay and read it is implicitly, I guess spontaneously, I do know that we all are called to manage our time, that our time is finite, etc. But I guess I hadn't thought about the idea that depending on the habits that you form and how those habits are synchronized with one another, one's experience of time might be changed. And furthermore, I guess I hadn't given much thought to how a particular conception of what counts as free time, what counts as work time, how work time is measured is not simply a transhistorical constant, but it is you know, a site of historical struggle. And so what I thought was really fascinating with what Thompson's trying to do here is he's not trying to necessarily say one way of apprehending time is better than the other but what he does want to mark out is you know how when the productive forces and techniques change you know, you also find different techniques for marking out shaping, controlling, and measuring time. And I guess he wants us to partially be attuned to that. But you know, he does end on a very nice utopian note that we can talk about later. But you know, the first thing that was really interesting to me is I I started thinking about how am I called to discipline my own time? How have I internalized this idea of you know how hard I should be working, when I should be working, etc. when I started thinking about people of irregular time schedules, how hard that is on them in this capitalist form of life, and thinking people like make their money by being Uber drivers or something, and you don't have the normal weekend off. And I just
0: started thinking people live very different lives according to how their time is disciplined
2: and managed. Yeah,
0: just picking up on that one point about it not being transhistorical, like the way that we relate to time. I was really struck in in this piece by the way he like reconstructs the very deliberate and concerted effort to make time discipline work in this way. It wasn't something that just organically emerged as even necessarily a part of industrial capitalism, although of course that's a part of it. But he like will point to like quoting specific figures who are elaborating the problem of time use and how workers are relating to time, and particularly how they're not relating to time in the right way, and show their yeah again their, their considered an effort to discipline them into a new different way of existing. Um, and there's one line that I, like there's a lot of them that are really great, but one of the ones um, one of the figures that he quotes. Uh, this person, William Temple, who's like uh, advocating for order and industriousness and punctuality. And he just says to me, I think maybe it's a good place to start off to for listeners, the kind of uh, material that he's working with. He says, William Temple when advocating in 1770 that poor children be sent at the age of four to workhouses where they should be employed in manufactures and given two hours of schooling a day was explicit about the socializing influence of the process. There is considerable use in their being, and this is William Temple now, there is considerable use in their being somehow or other constantly employed at least 12 hours a day, whether they earn their living or not. For by these means, we hope that the rising generation will be so habituated to constant employment that it would at length prove agreeable and entertaining to them. So I, wow. I, yeah, that's, <laughs> wow. Like, even if you don't get your money's worth, even work them like dogs. Absolutely, it is so much about that moral reform. You know,
3: I was thinking about those lines on schooling and the discipline of children and their time because I don't know if you all have been following this trend on TikTok of teachers talking about students recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and i'm not entirely sure what to make of it for those not familiar there's like a trend of teachers getting on and talking about how like specifically like elementary and middle school students are like years behind where they're supposed to be they're unruly and like uh they like have all these like behavioral pathologies can't pay and attention like alleg- can't read can't pay attention can't read don't know where they are what's going on and the alleging that this has to do with like you know, long after effects of COVID, having lost two or three years of important young early socialization. They're now ill-equipped. On the one hand, like, this seems possible, impossible. But on the other hand, like, these aren't studies. These are anecdotes. Who knows? This could be a trend. And I was reminded of that when I was reading this stuff. I was like, oh, okay, right. For hundreds of years, people have been complaining that the youths are unruly idiots who need to be disciplined harder and better. I was thinking, too, about a line by Mark Fisher where he's like, you know, if you read Foucault's Discipline and Punish, you know that we're already not living in the disciplinary society, if you're a teacher, because like, no one's got the microphysics of power. No one's like, (laughs) doing all of that careful work to make sure that you're like, got the apparatus of your your arm is is correct. But yeah, I don't know. It's it is odd to note how different these relationships of time are the one that's sort of how do we characterize it? This is a question I had. He's talking about so many different... Thompson is talking about so many different ways of marking time in pre-industrial, pre-capitalist societies. He seems to be drawing on all kinds of different anthropological research. He's reading people like J.M. Sin on the Aran Islands or these various like indigenous tribes... I don't know what to make of that in a way. I'm not sure if you guys have any ideas about is there like a unifying thread to all of these? That seems like that would be odd, right? Especially given that the thrust of the argument is that like time relations or inner time sense is not a trans historical, trans social thing. You know, how is he able to compare, you know, industrial time discipline with all of these other forms? Is there something in common there? I think His strategy
2: in this short essay is to look at how people dispose themselves to work. So he uses this example of pre-industrial capitalism. People still did discipline their time because there was work that needed to be done, whether it was you know crops, uh, fishing, sewing, etc. But you know what that work was synchronized with was more synchronized with the um, one, two things I think he's trying to look at. The tasks that needed to be, you know, accomplished. And two He's implying that there's also a closer relationship to the rhythms of nature. So there are times when the tide comes in, and that's when you should go fishing. Or there are times when the you know the crops are flourishing, and that's when you you should pick them. And I think what he's trying to say in industrial time, there's or industrial capitalism, there's a move away from you know at least hinging so, um, the dominant way of how we approach time according to either natural rhythms or task orientation, and it becomes closer to this sort of commodity-oriented idea of how much value can you squeeze from what's considered the workday, irrespective of what the tasks may be, and maybe in our contemporary moment, we might think, irrespective of what the, the waxing and waning of nature might be. You know, I think we all understand, like, for a lot of, you know, capitalist firms, time can't stop. Just because you know, you know, there might be a little bit of a famine somewhere, you've got to go find somewhere else if if your firm is going to survive. Or if not, I guess you go under. But that's a large view, but I think he's really interested in the experience of being the worker in in these factories and how a manager talks about your time, disciplines you, what they're trying to get out of you. And that's what I, I think he's looking at, the different sort of value orientation towards time. Mm-hmm.
1: I do think that what's significant is the change in value orientation toward time and how like, not very successful it was, but also continues to be. Like, I think that there's this real subsumption of like, the human sense of like, leisure to the, the labor process. And I think this is why I, I stick to the idea that like, capitalism is a, is a totality, because like, if you actually have to orient your sense of, of time and what's worthwhile and not worthwhile around this thing, I just don't know what it means to say that there's like an outside to that like to be honest i think people overintellectualize this like i mean in an, in a in a clear boundary setting way like your whole life is oriented towards how you spend your time in doing this thing and it makes sense for, internal to the labor process like why people would need to be disciplined but then i think the thing that's kind of universalizing about capitalism is like and i've i've said this before but like people really resist this idea that capitalism universalizes. But I I think it does. Like if labor discipline is successful internally to the labor process and like development kind of precedes a pace such that like most people are relating to it in this way, then having a set of value orientations towards managing your relationship to that thing, both internal, inside and outside, some things are going to become pretty regular. And like even if you have different ways of articulating why you're doing the things you're doing, creating a sense of value of what is outside versus inside becomes very important, which is why I kind of began with like, even, I think, the most right-wing people educate their children. I mean, like, if you listen to right-wing media or read any books, of, people think that what matters is family, love, and human connection. Like, like, they'll never admit that what they actually care about is work discipline. Everyone thinks that these are the real things in life. So I think the fact that we know you can't buy happiness, but you can buy time, it's a kind of an incredible, like, a set of problems that does universalize with this system as, as different as you might be, being con- like confronted with this problem and having to make sense of it, whether you r- you relate to it willingly and, and enthusiastically because you think there are virtues of work or because you think it's like a set of like western import- imposed norms, regardless of what's going to uh, of your normative evaluation of the thing, you do have to start making those choices and so regularities and rationalizations for it in terms of what your values are, emerge.
2: I'll, I'll just say real quickly to follow up on that. I think a, another way to think about capitalism as a universalizing process is, even if you don't accept what seems to be the dominant form of the time discipline, and here here's the thing, you. Know, even what we're told is a dominant form of the time discipline, the way that markets are structured, not everyone can have those regular jobs that, you know, allow you to have a pension that allows you to save time for the future so that you can enjoy your time off. So I think, one, we should look at those objective contradictions, but the way that you can look at it is there are real costs if you live a life that is considered, in scare quotes, irregular, If you live a life that tries to disavow that kind of rhythm and orientation of the constant life of allowing capital to accumulate, it's a stressful life. It's a life where when you're like in your 70s and you're not as spry and you realize, oh no, I don't have things saved up, that is a real cost to one's time. So I think another way to look at it is those who live, quote unquote, irregular lives, uh, according to the dominant time discipline, there are real costs. There might be some advantages in freedom, but there is some real pain that goes with that as well.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think that that's more true on the sort of picture that Thompson is is sort of painting for us, that's like more true now than would have been the case in the past, right? This is the sort of irregularity that you're describing. He thinks was fairly characteristic, right, of like pre-industrial work patterns, as he puts it, which he describes as having been one of quote alternate bouts of intense labor and of idleness, wherever men were in control of their own working lives. And then he says, parenthetically, this is fascinating. There's so many fascinating lines in this piece. It's remarkable. Parenthetically, he says, this pattern persists among some self-employed artists, writers, small farmers, and perhaps also with students today, and provokes the question whether or not it is a, quote, natural human work rhythm, close parentheses, right? This is the idea of there being like a kind of left to your own devices if you're not subject to the intensive time discipline of like industrial capital's rhythms, it's sort of, real subsumption as you put it Lillian of like the the rhythms of life to yeah value orientation rather than task orientation or natural patterning you get these like you know i'm going to hang out and not do much and then i'm going to like work really hard when it's time and then i'm going to go back to lying around and it's like that mm-hmm. does seem kind of like how i would live if left to my own devices not that i'm doing that now or anything but yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> i like that he like um he ventures the question he's like maybe this is a quote natural human work rhythm that seems to be Something that people return to when given the chance. I think that's fascinating.
2: I also think, uh, I feel like I've been talking a lot, so this is the last thing I'll say for like five minutes. But I I just love this essay a lot. It just really provokes me. Thinking about maybe the idea of natural rhythms. But, you know, I think Lillian was right that most people, when they talk about how time is important... Most people, at least, don't say to their children, your job is your life, so you better get that squared away early. I mean, maybe there's a parent out there who did that. I I imagine Donald Trump probably talked to his kids that way. Look how well they turned out. He didn't
3: talk to his children. (laughs) Fair enough, yeah. That
2: was a a bald-faced lie on my part. But – there is another type of discourse. So I'm thinking about when uh, the pandemic first started and a lot of people were stuck at home or not working. And, you know, that's partially what, you know, led to, you know, those enormous protests that happened around George Floyd. There was mm-hmm. this discourse of worrying that people need to get back to work. They mm-hmm. have yeah. too much time in their hands to stew, to think about what their life is like, to think about radical ideas. To, and like, so- learn
0: things, no good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> learn learn. Other things, there was even that attorney general or lieutenant governor in Texas who's like, You know what? I'm an old grandparent, and you're damn right, I would die for the economy so that oh, it would yeah. be there for my yeah. children. Goaded line incredible <laughs> yeah, stuff, very go very off, cool king. Thing to say, but yeah. you know, I also <laughs> think that there is, you know. An interest and Thompson's like charting this of these people talking about better for these people to be working for 12 hours, even if we don't get everything we need out of them because mm-hmm. of the habits they will create. But I wonder if there is even contemporarily. There's a worry of our political masters of, well, what's important about jobs, 30-year mortgages and all of that, if you can get it nowadays, is that it does have a pacifying – it can have a pacifying effect Mm -hmm. as opposed to the spread of irregularity, the spread of a dangerous type of free time.
0: Yeah, COVID gave rise to a lot of discourse around that. I mean, you still see some of it. This thing went viral recently of this, like, real estate mogul guy, like, decrying oh, yeah. the, the, uh, the arrogance of, like, workers post-COVID who just, like, don't want to work enough, don't have enough of a will uh, uh, yeah, like, to work. Yeah, was cool. Yeah. And, and they're and- not grateful to, yeah. you know,
2: their betters, is pretty much what he was saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think actually that's a helpful – so that kind of intense scorn – that that real estate mogul like shows for um, workers nowadays is exactly the kind of scorn. This is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier that EP Thompson is like tracking at the emergence of industrial capitalism. It isn't just that like, you know, it's more serviceable for, um, for, for economic output to have more time disciplined workers. There's like a moral wing of this struggle in which is trying to actually, to try to convince people through propagandistically that, it's actually disgusting. You're like sleeping in. It is disgusting that like this is the language that he pulls out that he's pulling Those out of er, these. The um, early
2: birds. Unfortunately, yeah, the, I'm one of them. I know we can be that way.
0: I have no,
2: no
3: friends from, here. <laughs> you stay away from my mornings, okay? <laughs> you you sicko, you pervert. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's all, it's all good. But like, you know, the, some of the lines are amazing too. Of Again, these kind of like moral warriors, these like time discipline warriors that are like absolutely disgusted by people. Once they get off work, like he said, sometimes they'll just sit around for an hour, even like, even like two hours, <laughs> and they'll just talk like with their friends. It'll be he calls it a gross. He calls it gross jocularity. Sometimes it verges on gross <laughs> jocularity, right? Workers just like like outside of work hours, and uh, and you know just cannot just cannot stand this, and really wants to inculcate even in schools a lot of them the idea that this is morally abhorrent, and you need to learn you know through a combination of like pur- puritanism and the time discipline needs of capital. You know you need to work on. Improving yourself, even at a young age.
3: If I could just counterpose that idea, right? Like, the the disgust and contempt for, like, a guy who's been working, just <laughs> chatting with the homies for a minute and being Killing like, Chilling on oh the stoop and just fucking shooting, talking shit. Compare that. Like, one of the things that Thompson's so good at is, like, showing what these different senses of time look like from the perspective of the other. Yeah. The other side, right? <laughs> and similarly, like he says, for the person not dominated by industrial capitalist like time discipline regularity there's a quote where he says haste to this kind of person right haste is seen as a lack of decorum combined with diabolical ambition i love the idea of like seeing someone like working really hard and like being like really trying to like get after it and just being like Okay, first of all, that's embarrassing. No, somebody's like, <laughs> a, one, of these, of like one
0: of these like hustle culture influencers talking about getting on your grind set and yeah, just getting like, on your grind and getting and being getting like, on your grind and shit. And this person is like looking at this uh, this person describing being on your grind and just thinking that is a diet, but that's a demon. That's 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 a demon. <laughs> the <laughs> the devil. Got it. Like that is a fucking actually a actual <laughs> animated by by demons. This guy. Like, you've got, a, you've
3: like, got right. demonic ambitions and all, and also like. Bro, you are like embarrassing yourself.
0: Wait, oh my God. I'm thinking of another video that also, I mean, maybe it's not the best thing on a podcast to do this, but there's another video went viral of a guy saying, talking about how he actually manages to fit three days in one day. Oh yeah. And he's I like, he's like, so, freak. all right. So I get up at five and I, like, I do X, Y, and Z till noon. That's my first day. Okay, I get a day's worth of stuff done. Then, then from twelve to six, that's day two. And then he's like, "So yeah, you add this up over a month, over a year, and now I've worked five thousand more hours than you." And like, and I've had, five, and I literally have got five thousand more. You know, I've got all this more time. <laughs> that, that, that man is a demon. That is a demon. That's a fucking demon. Oh, Shit. He actually
2: looks demonic
0: too. Look
3: it up,
2: I, if
0: you,
3: look I, it up, folks. I,
2: I'm sorry. I I wish Lukash had been alive to see that, and he was just be really, like, "Oh, wow!" So we doing all the reification. I get it. Okay.
1: This sounds uh, like uh, being real. like being in Italy. Like this is like yeah. <laughs> like people are just like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. What I was am I, just
2: about to bring up Italy, yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, I guess
1: this is the sort of thing when I, I always thought people were kind of making this up, like hostility to the Southern Europeans. I think my official opinion about this is that, like, this is real. At the same time, I think it's, like, pushing it too far to make it sound like this is, like, actual racism or something. It's, it's like, it, it's not. But it's, it is, like, an actual form of, like, xenophobic hostility and it always is that, like, Southern Europeans just, like, won't work. And I'm like, dude, like, 25% of, like, people under 30 are unemployed. So, like, I don't, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. So, like, like there's, a, like there's just not a lot of, you know, like, the, there's a macro problem going on here. But it's interpreted as always through, like, a cultural lens. Um, but what's funny is that, like, the other side of it, one of my cousins... Uh, In Basilicata, like I was explaining to her how like Germans, you know, like on the surface they're like very reserved and they're diligent, efficient, and so on. And then the other side, they're like very goofy. And then they're all like in Berlin, going to the clubs on the weekends and doing all the nonsense that we know they do. And she looks at me and she goes, "This, uh, this whole, this Northern European thing, I don't like. I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) No." And no, like she was like like it. she like yeah. and I could see that like the way like the oscillation from like the like the the formal culture and the informal culture she was just like mm, I don't think so it's not for me.
2: <laughs> I will say one of my experiences in Italy. I went to this bougie ph- philosophy conference called the Collegium, and it's in this very small town in Italy. I, this is my first time ever being to Italy and I get there and we come to our lunch break and it's in this small town and I'm like, all right, so I need to go someplace and get something to eat real quick. Tell me why almost every restaurant was closed because that is like, you because know, it was their midday was rest. And <laughs> there was, nap, you know, <laughs> and I, I yeah, no they are napping. I'm like, wait <laughs> a second. No, 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 no the little capitalist inside me that comes from, you know, the Imperial core. I'm like, this is when you make your money. We are hungry. What do you <laughs> mean? You are not working during the lunch hour. What the fuck am I supposed to do? And that's how I learned to respect other people's time. It was a very, the more, you know, moment will grew. <laughs> he became less racist. It was great.
1: <laughs> I, experienced, I experienced that for the first time when I was 19, I spent um, a summer in Tunisia and I realized that like, Everybody was sleeping, and I was like, "What are you guys doing? What are you doing?" <laughs> and then it was, and then like, the, I I was studying there. I was doing a language program, and the I was living with a host family, and this lady I was living with was just like she like I remember her like cocking her head sideways, and she like put because like I had no language skills at the time. I was there to study Arabic, and she was like. You know, like, put her, like, head on her hands, like, <laughs> like what do you think we're doing?
2: We sleep it. <laughs> we
3: sleep it. We sleep it. What, what, what do you mean? I'm struck by, like, um, one of the, the ways that he describes this transition. Maybe you guys can help me, like, get a grip on this. He says that, like, the one way of understanding the shift to this change, right, is from passing your your time, right, like, in labor or in work to spending your time. Mm. And... I intuitively know what that means. And I know at the level of the language, right? Like we can talk about like something buying me some time or I spend my time in a certain way, time is money. But I also wanna see if I can't get you guys to help me like articulate a little more clearly. What do we mean when we talk about th- time as money as being like related to this sort of transition or this what's going on there? What do we mean when we say that time becomes money in industrial capitalist subsumption? Intuitively, I get it, but like I also I want to be clearer, and I feel like I've only got like an impressionistic
1: yeah I'll guess. take a stab at it i I think I can be quick, but I think there's lots to say about this. I think totally. that when you start spending your time, it's literally like you're spending money, so like you think if you're broke, okay, which frequently occurs, you're like here's the like I have a week until I get paid, I can spend so much on groceries every day, like I'm spending my money, and then. Like I have to pay the bills and then I, this is what I have left over. Okay. And then at some point your time starts to be calculated in a certain way as mm-hmm. not just, I mean, I guess they are all commodities, but like these other things, like I, the the rationing system, like the active rationing of like, what is, what, how your time is, how you are living in your time. And I think passing time has like a more passive, what we're, uh, impression where like, if I say I pass the day, you know, you have this idea of like you're frolicking on the lawn or something. You know, and actually what's interesting though is in English, like other languages do use past and more of a this I think this is semantic. I, I don't I don't think it's in every language that this difference is quite this way. But right. that's how I would yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean he says that what happens with time when it makes this passage is that it becomes abstracted. Right. So that you can break it up. So you can break it up into measurable enumerated units, you know, and then, yeah, like you would with money, particular dollars, you can like spend these at these abstract units in a particular way, um, rather than just, I don't know, I guess like, yeah, even if you compare that to the kind of task oriented time that he's describing prior to industrialization, there isn't like a set of units of time. I mean, there's, a general like set of temporal rhythms, and then you have to accommodate some of your action to that to some, to some greater or lesser extent. Um, it just yeah, it just isn't abstracted and measured in that way. So
2: the way that, that I think of it is when I was living paycheck to paycheck. I knew the exact day and time that direct deposit check was supposed to hit my bank account. I oh, lived yeah. my life mm-hmm. oh, two yeah. weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no the year 2019. There was Thursday, 12:59 <laughs> or 11:59 pm. To two weeks, Thursday, 1159 p.m. My life, you know, because this was especially me in grad school, like the experience of my time was, you know, simply paycheck to paycheck. When is that check going to get there? And then my life gets to start over. I imagine is different if you're someone who like just lives off the residuals of your trust fund or what's in the market. But then if you're someone who like lives in the market, yeah you know, we know that people who like run these businesses as CEOs, for them, time is the quarter earnings report. They, you know, mm-hmm. understand the meaning and fecundity of what they are doing, not necessarily in the sort of the long term, but you know, what is it going to be said about how much my company has earned in four months when we have to release those reports? And so that kind of goes with what like Owen was saying about the abstraction of it, how it starts to carve this up in units, rather than this might be getting a little slipshoddy, but when you're hanging out with, uh, with friends and having a really good time, it is not as if you're like, oh, man, mm-hmm. I can't wait to have these three hours with friends before I turn to another activity. Right. We <laughs> do have a way of talking about the time just flew by. Or mm-hmm. if you want to be kind of hokey with it, you know, when you're with somebody you really care about, it can feel like time is standing still. Like, oh, my God. Five minutes with someone you really care about can seem more meaningful than like two hours with your boss. And so I think you know, he's also thinking about that phenomenological experience of how we not just talk about time, how it becomes meaningful to us compared to when it has to be synchronized with the cash nexus. And there are these layers of when is my check coming in, but then your boss is looking at their earning reports and being like, so are we... Above in the ledger, below in the ledger, compared to other companies, who are they above? Then you can, I think, you can start to see how it starts getting really chopped up. Yeah. So the,
3: the like abstraction of time into like discrete units to be spent in certain ways, that's really helpful. The other thing about it, of course, is that there's a, he just says that there's like a, again, it's a kind of phenomenological experience. This measurement. Embodies a relationship. He writes, "Those who are employed experience a distinction between their employer's time and their quote own time." It's in this shift to that it becomes possible to understand one's time as not being one's own. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We're like being on the clock means that this is not my time. That this is, in fact, you know, this is the the core analysis of the wage relation in capital. It's because I've sold my labor power, my labor time, in advance that I get to have this kind of experience and that only works if it's a discrete unit that I can dispense of as at will like I can like any other piece of private property right this thing I can just I can sell it to you and now time starts to work like that with the advent of industrial capital
1: what's also fucked up is they take all, out a loan on your time like it's yeah. not like you get paid up front for your time because no. like <laughs> I mean like I think this is one of the things mm. that is most amazing about the wage relationship and and the way that it incentivizes increasing labor productivity and, and I mean, that I think that's the point of it, but then like discipline in accordance with that was like when you started a job, you get your first paycheck, like weeks later. Yeah. You get, it's a, it's a month in Europe, it's two weeks in the U S and like, what they're actually doing is taking out a loan on your time. And with any other loan, they'd have to pay you interest. But in this version, they just give you this hourly <laughs> wage. <laughs> um, and then, and then they can take more than they gambled for, because they can get used to it, stay a little later, or work harder, or faster. And that's like, that's the genius of Marx's analysis in Capital is that the taking out of the loan on time. And that's like, I think that's what he means. Many people puzzle over this distinction between labor and labor power, like the whole reason the distinction of labor power, I think it becomes a lot easier to understand if you just see it as like, yeah, they're taking out a loan on your time and they don't have to pay you interest for it. In fact, they can get more out of it than you signed up for. And then they give you the exact same. So basically your labor time can depreciate and value by the end of the process. Like if you were to think about this as like a credit system and Mm -hmm. then, yeah, like they, like they come out on, on top. It's kind of amazing.
3: Can I just say real quick, that moment in Capital One where he's talking about that thing that you just described, Lillian, mm-hmm. right? That, like, in fact, you're they're, like, taking a loan out on your time. It's one of the moments where Marx is at his funniest, which is when he's pissed off at how stupid another political economist is. And it's because he, he's reading Mill on that point. And Mill says something like, well, I mean, really, what we could do is understand the workers investing their capital. In the form of time, with a view towards gaining an interest <laughs> on it later to, on payday. So be, really, the employee is just as much a capitalist as the capitalist.
0: <laughs> and Marx oh, is like, great. and Marx
3: is like, okay, so this is the dumbest shit I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he closes out the chapter by saying, like, after just thoroughly dominating Mill on this point, this is where he has the line about how, like. On, on a flat plane, even a, a tiny bump looks like a great mountain. And like the insipid flatness of the p- present bourgeoisie ought to be measured by the heights of its so-called great intellectuals. <laughs> he's so good. Yeah,
0: I was also thinking about the primitive accumulation chapter, where he like, where he, again he's talking about the, the the British political economists, the classical political economists, and like the way that they project back into the past the origin story of capitalism. And that, you know, the, the actual the story is, according to the political economists, is that, you know, some people were like time disciplined and way back in the day they were they were thrifty. They were industrious right, and nice, like good. they were like, you know, they were the ones that, uh, that that's the reason why some people became rich and some people became poor and the why this class system got off the ground. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I just love that like projection. Well, Thompson's Thompson's historical intervention here gives the like the, the lie to
3: that this time discipline consciousness is a late product, right? It can't literally...
0: Well, industry. that's, yeah, that's what's outrageous, like, is that clearly this is not, like, it, it, speaking in the 1700s and projecting that back, like, into some, like, mythical past, that way of relating to time and that, like, sense of industriousness and thrift, like, that comes from the emergence of capitalism when they're writing. It has nothing, it could, by, it has nothing to do with, like, previous epochs.
2: Yeah, but also, I sense that what I think Thompson's also getting at is that the ideological justification, along with these yo know, very real socio economic shifts, also helped inculcate a worldview that I think we're still living in, you know, those of us who want to see like a real radical change in our economic system, you can call it socialism, you can call it communism. I think one of the ambient fears about that is for all of the, you know, the sort of, uh, the messed up things that capitalism does, the the waste, the arbitrariness, etc is the idea that, but the thing is, because it threatens so many people with um, the fact that if they don't discipline their time well, they will starve, they will go hungry, that gets them to work. The idea that if we were to move away from that system, we can't trust people to organize their time in any sort of way that would have, you know, uh, anything like a functioning and fruitful society. And so I think sometimes there's this, you know, ambient argument that even though it seems wrong that so much of our life is hinged to the time of capital and that if we don't act correctly we will lose everything you know as as the individual is this feeling that but no people do need a taskmaster though you can't trust the billions of people to not do what's needed to be done unless you take the reins of their time and force them into the disipl- into being disciplined. I don't completely agree with that, but I, I can see how many quote-unquote reasonable people might find themselves thinking something like, well, I might not like all of these excesses, but we do need the stick if people are going to use their time well. And I, I sense that that's partially what EP Thompson is trying to push back against. Mm-hmm. And you know that's coming near the the end where he you know has this wonderful line but if the purpose of notation of time use becomes less compulsive then men might have to relearn some of the arts of living lost in the industrial revolution. How to fill the interstices of their days with enriched more leisurely personal and social relations, how to break down once more the barriers between work and life how to seek to rediscover modes of experience forgotten before written history begins. And so he's, he starts gesturing to this idea of, you know, what type of people would we have to learn to become if the stick, the discipline, the compulsiveness of time discipline, at least according to the law of value and capital accumulation were lifted? And I think there are a lot of people who might think that it's actually not possible for there to be coherent life without the time of value constantly herding generations of people into work.
1: I mean, I know I need discipline because if, <laughs> I, because if, I, if you make me work all day and I'm depressed about that, then I'm going home to watch my soaps until two in the morning. Then I'm gonna start again <laughs> the next day. And that's all that's gonna be going on until I have some instigation to do otherwise. There's a whole instead of inertia inertia (laughs) is going on there internal you're talking about counter discipline no i'm saying that like i do like i need to be like if you don't make me wake up for a meeting and i'm like depressed about all the things i did the day before then i'm just gonna Mm. sit on the couch and watch my soaps and then i'm gonna go to bed and i'm gonna sleep till 11 the next day unless i have to go to a meeting and then there's some reason why i need to be at that meeting or else there's a bad consequence for me so yeah i need discipline What's the problem? But I'm I'm optimistic that like with different incentives, I would feel differently because I can be very industrious about things willfully as well. But I'm I'm just I'm just saying that like g- given the given the current state of affairs, I absolutely need discipline.
0: I don't know how this would exactly cash out with academia because something like I don't know how you automate meetings. Um, but you know, he, he brings us up in the context of automation. He's like, what if like, you know, we're able through automation to basically eliminate the need for the vast majority of the labor that's done, the vast majority of the work that's done. Um, and then like, what w- would we be able, would we know how to, to, I was about to say, spend that time, but would we know how to pass that time? Like in meaningful ways, would we be able to like rediscover, the, the joys of just passing time with human connection or with love or with friends or whatever it might be, or have we been so deeply subjectified, like turned into subjects, a specific kind of subject that even without the taskmaster there, right, even without needing to, to be, um, even without the, you know, not needing to be in a workplace and be, to be disciplined accordingly, would we know how to Actually, enjoy that time? And I think it's, uh, I'm just like absolutely fascinated by that question. There's a lot of people that I think, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't ever want to retire. There's a lot of people, you know what I mean? They just want to work. My dad was that way. Yeah.
2: I think retirement terrified him. Yeah. That, you know, work gave him a type of structure. I, I almost hesitate to say a type of meaning to his life, even though he had all, he had a rich interior life. Don't get me wrong. And all Hmm. of that. But I think he had a sense that, you know, without that, without that constant need to hustle just a little bit more, he wouldn't have known what to do with himself. And
0: I partially get that. I mean, yeah. I, I also just know like, yeah, I, I get that too. I get it. Um, I just think that like even, I don't know, even people that are our age, I know people that are so like brain broken by capitalist time discipline that you can't even really enjoy time, like time off or weekends. You always have to be doing something. You always have to be like, yeah. you have to have something to show for the time. And there's like a real anxiety about I agree, having. Agree, I'm
1: no- so against this.
0: Yes, I agree, and and so there's like almost soaps an anxiety. My Exactly. Yes, there's yeah. some, there's an anxiety about having nothing <laughs> nothing to show for the time that you're not working, and that mm. I just find so distressing. I mean, doing nothing fucking rules. It's amazing. <laughs> yes, yeah. well, I think we all know people who
2: going on vacation seems like it's just another job again. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, yeah. yeah. This yeah. is what I love about going on vacation with my current partner. She's like. All we need is one activity a day, and then the rest is just lazing about. I'm like, thank, thank God. I'll do like shout out
1: to Sadie.
0: Shout out to Sadie. Yeah. She's <laughs> so a real one. Big ups, big ups. I mean, it depends on the trip, but I'd be perfectly happy with like zero activities sometimes in the day. <laughs> Like literally the only activity is just sitting on some terrace or something and just talking, or you know, drinking and looking at things like that. That I don't know, infinitely more <laughs> valuable to me than some crazy list that people make when they travel places. Where you have to see the X, Y, and Z. I, I, I hate when people say like, "We, uh, oh yeah, we did this." Like, yeah, we did the Louvre. We went to Paris. We did the Louvre. <laughs> we did the oh Eiffel God, Tower. Too. We did like you cannot do places i mean you cannot. that language is so fucked like
3: nice so this conversation also has unfolded another piece of what it means for time to be money for me this is super helpful well because one of the differences between passing time and spending time is of course if time is money and you're spending it there ought to be something that you get for it yeah right it's an exchange it's an exchange transactional exchange relation so like under these present conditions of late capitalist subjectivation like this explains people's aversion to or even contempt for or hostility to passing time because from their perspective all there is is time to spend and yet you have nothing to show for it you may as well just set not your money even on pictures fire. for the gram <laughs> yeah what have what? you done right? <laughs> nothing to show for it but i think that there's like a yeah there's like a real like virtue in knowing how to pass time and not feel guilty about passing time in the way that we're so often made to feel. Absolutely. It's an art.
0: I feel like there's a lot of it's context art. in it's this art. in this society where I am like fucking persecuted basically because uh, <laughs> <by> the, <laughs> because I don't want to wreck the, wrecking, of the I, earth. I don't want to play games. I don't want to play Board games, like I don't want to, I don't know, whatever it is that some little project you want to come up with for the day, I want to sit there and fucking talk shit and just talk shit for hours. You know what I mean? Some maybe some of it's serious for a little bit, or like we talk about politics or I, don't, I love talking about shit you know, talking about philosophy, but also you could also just I don't know, make stuff up and talk shit about each other, rib each other a little bit. Like, I don't know. That to me is like that's what. I, that's what I always want to be doing with, like, with spare time. I and love that
3: you experienced this as persecution.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like, let's, let's keep Owen to that language. You're all y'all Settlers of Catan players, Monopoly players, you're persecutors. You're perse- my, I point you my persecutors. I
0: don't want to do anything. <laughs> you are persecutors. <laughs> I don't understand why you want to fill the time you don't have to do stuff with more doing.
2: <laughs> you? Man, fair enough.
0: <laughs> anyway, sorry. That's my, that's, maybe that's a very idiosyncratic issue, but you're
3: from an older time when people celebrated and uh, worshipped Saint Monday and Saint Tuesday, as Thompson
0: talks I about. I really identify with them.
3: I know. That, that's the one thing where Owen's like, we have to go back. <laughs>
0: they, <laughs> they keep, well, they, they can't. So these like assholes in the, in the 18th century and 19th century kept giving descriptions of all like the worst kinds of people. And I'm reading them and I'm like, these are, these are my, my people. people. My like, people. These are my people. <laughs> <laughs> like he, he, he just, people that just like, oh, they spend way too much time just wanting to be at different festivals and drinking alcohol and just yeah. like <laughs> sitting around. They love to just talk. The, the gross it, jocularity. Gross jocularity. I was about to say, Owen, is, you love gross joc- jocularity. Is. Jocularity is jocularity. the most valuable like thing that can possibly occur with my time. You know, what I mean, just
3: and then if you are forced to go to work on Monday, you're just going to do a bad job yeah. and fuck around. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> steal a bunch of stuff and steal a bunch of shit yeah. on the
2: way out. I mean, I guess like the 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 last thing i w- I would think about this is we don't necessarily have to be committed to the idea that discipline is bad. in fact, you know, Owen's talking about the discipline you need in order to just be able to spend your time, but I guess like for for Thompson he's raising the question. Of, so where does that discipline come from and to what end? And it seems to me, well, he's a Marxist historian, so he doesn't think the discipline of capital increases freedom. But you know, he might be asking, well, what if we discovered new ways of disciplining ourselves that actually might be conducive to a healthier, mm-hmm. freer, more self-determining type of life?
3: Yeah, I think this is super important that, like, the task orientation that he describes, right, isn't just, like, undisciplined random time, right? It is attuned to natural temporalities, like we were saying. There are times
0: when it's not urgent to work on, like, other temporalities, right? And so, like, you just don't – you just stop. And then if it does become more urgent (laughs) – you do the work that needs to be done when you it do becomes to be done
3: based on the necessity of the task and its nature and its yeah. like flow so that could we could understand as a kind of time discipline right like working as needed according to these natural rhythms um, and so on in accordance with the nature of the task but there's a something totally different and completely crazy about like no we're going to discipline nature its temporality needs to be subsumed under the demands of just like value accumulation full stop like no under No condition, right? It's an unconditional demand for all time to be brought in line,
0: right? Brought to heal. That's not great. I like that kind of time discipline. I hate that, actually. Yeah, I was wondering what you guys thought about the, um, some of what he was saying about the universalization of that imperative, right, that you were just describing, Gil. Like, he says at one point, you know, this is written in 1967, and he says the same language that is that was used about the British working class in the 1700s and the 1800s is used now to talk about developing countries and the absence of a proper puritanical work ethos uh, in developing countries. Um, I don't know, you know. What did you guys think about that?
2: It seems to me, you know, even in 1967, if you look at the United States, some of that sort of like, you know cultural discourse of explaining why urban blacks fall behind is because you know, they like to hang out on the stoop this is a quasi joke But you know, We've all heard that That notion of CP time Colored people's time Of black people always And that it's racist To late.
0: expect punctuality From black people
2: Okay yeah We don't need to get into that Yeah okay. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know These types of Obviously Asinine cultural descriptions Of you know These people just Don't know how to live up To what the modern world Needs of them But the joke I was going to make is Yeah some people Have said like CP time was a form Of resistance You know you're not going to make me show up at any time that I, I have to show up. But when I was reading this essay, I also couldn't help but think about what happens on the Amazon warehouse floor, how you know closely they monitor your bathroom breaks and you can use up your amount of bathroom breaks. So then you have to just pee in the container. And so I think maybe that is probably the most crystal clear example of time is money, where even the natural bodily function of relieving yourself is given only a determinate span. And you're just constantly being monitored where you're walking on the floor, how fast, etc. And your whole reason for being is hinged to this anonymous production mechanism. It runs the body ragged, I think. Ask anyone who works in those jobs. It's, it's terrible. And we're living through, hopefully, the beginning of like strike waves. And so much of that is about we should be able to get to organize our time in these factories.
1: I do think that one of the things that, is important in like the conversation about time and management and so on is like, there's a really long line of, you know, Marxian critique about like, this is where claims for like self-determination come from. So like you, you don't have any control over your life and you should have control over your life. And I think, I think that this sort of critique has limits. Like, I don't think that self-determination is like the only criteria for like, thinking about freedom. I think that there are numerous criteria, but I do think it gives a rationale for for resistance. You know, like I think self-determination tends to be like a claim that you raise against opposition. And I do, f- and, and like some Marxists have like, you know, someone like John Romer will start to say that like the the control over the labor process point is immaterial to to marxian critique cuz they kind of turn it into like a egalitarian he turns it to like an egalitarian sort of argument and like i think egalitarian arguments are are important too it's just there's something irreducible about this that like turning away from because it it opens up these sort of existential questions and questions that like can't be answered by other ideas about equality or so on and so like even if it's just kind of like one dimension of thinking about this problem. I think it's like a really an important one. And I think that maybe some people have kind of de-emphasized it in an attempt to say that there are more th- things that are more fundamental or whatever. And like, maybe they are, but like, or because in like advanced capitalist countries, like later labor productivity increases so much and you can redistribute wealth that at some point people do have some free time. And then you can say, well, you know, this, that doesn't you know, not for everybody and blah, blah. So you can argue about that. But like, I think it's really not dependent on the state of affairs. It's just in principle, whether or not your time should be determined by an alien force in that, in that way. And whether or not this is like a, a way of thinking about time and the schizophrenic way of thinking about your relationship to work and your own time. Like when I think about the amount of time I spend doing things, I actually choose not to think about how I'm balancing my time because I know if I thought about it too deeply, I would be very upset. You know, so I, I focus on like when I can get the windows of unmitigated leisure and free time, and I I'm like happy that I'm able to do that. I understand like some people are psychologically not able, but like being able to put hard stops at some points is just kind of good enough for me. But the truth is is that I work through mm-hmm. weekends all the time, spend loads of time doing things on transport and working and reading and just like loads of time. That if I were to quantify it and be like, wow, this is my life, and that would be that would become very upsetting you know? And so, and so I think there's a reason not to think about it, but I think there's just something central to the problem that I think people should be reticent to kind of give up.
0: Yeah. One of the, like, obviously there's a lot that's really difficult, but one of the like really nice things about having a kid and staying home with that kid a lot is that time just is like really altered by that, by that activity. Like you're there for the day and there is nothing to accomplish. The thing to accomplish is that, Like, your kid has fun and is okay and, like, kept safe. But, like, there's no – you're not – I don't know. It feels at least, like, for me not, like, spending time. It's actually introduced this period of time into my life, like, my everyday life where there's nothing to quantify. There are – there's nothing – there's no way to, like, break it up into some kind of abstract unit and have something to – Chauffeur. I guess when you have an eighteen-year-old, you're like, oh, um, I guess now I, I don't know. This is what you have to chauffeur or something. But I don't think it really works <laughs> that way. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, there's just something I found actually quite beautiful about that, even though it's really hard. Like a lot of the time, I'm really tired, whatever. But there is something really beautiful about just this suspension of accomplishing things. I cannot do anything else. Like there's nothing else I can do, and and she doesn't have anything to do but play. you know, and so. It just completely, yeah. It's been like kind of at first it was kind of a mind fuck, and now I've really started to appreciate it, despite it being hard. Yeah, I think
3: there's if there's like a, a note to end on, it's like not being on the clock isn't enough. You need to cultivate the capacity for play, for for leisure time. Yeah, I mean time. that's
0: only been possible too because of weird academic scheduling and the ability to be home a lot and stuff too. It's not, it's not an experience I think that is actually even available to a lot of people. Well, we could at least stop giving people a hard time for being lazy. I would love that. There's a right to laziness, <laughs> I absolutely. I mean, I've, 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 I, listen, I know there's the British The British exported and universalized a lot of really bad things in the world. But, like, these kind of work patterns and this kind of, like, time discipline is a top three of, like, the worst things <laughs> that, that, that the, those islands are responsible for imposing on the world. Big Ben was a mistake. <laughs> yes, <laughs> facts.
1: Okay, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Nicholas Diebold, Gustav Chial, my girlfriend Elfie is the best. I agree. Go Elfie. Oz <laughs> Amram, Sean, Connor Lardner, Sammy James, Mel, James Much, Sam Hit, Aaron Petkoff, Julia Greening, Charlie Mahoney, Skylar Hendricks, Stefan Bruger, J- David Sharf, William Robbie, John Bone, Riley Griffin, Joma. Thank you all very much. If you, too, like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.
3: See you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.